You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Brooke Gladstone is the host of NPR's On the Media. Her new work of graphic nonfiction is The Influencing Machine, illustrated by Josh Neufeld. Thank you for joining me, Brooke. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Swallowed some coffee there. (laughs) Well, this is radio. You can do it whenever you want. (laughs) uh, This is an interesting take because it's a a work of graphic nonfiction about the media. It's meta-media about the media. I know. It's meta, 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 meta meta-media. That's all I've ever lived in is meta-world. You know, worlds about worlds. Why can't I just live in the actual world? But actually, this was the fulfillment of a life's dream because I got to be a comic strip character. I got to be Spider-Man. I got to turn into a dog. I went into the Matrix. I was on the tarot deck. I was in colonial America. I was a cave woman. I, you know, boy, I get to take people through uh, millennia jumping back and forth through the history of man and the history of media and explaining why we are neither teetering on the brink of civilization's collapse or teetering on the edge of a glorious cyber utopia. <laughs> well, it's interesting because it does seem that <clears throat> we always think that where we are on kind of the brink of a technological revolution that's going to undermine the world when we are really just all revolted by whatever the newest technology <laughs> is. <laughs> right. Did you see the uh, the picture and the quote of from Douglas Adams in there. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was that's... it was just brilliant. I mean, I, I might change the timing a little bit, but what he said was that any technology that was around when we were growing up is right and in the natural order of things, and any technology that happened uh, up until the age of 35 is exciting and new and is launching us into the future, and anything that happens after that is terrifying and uh, basically the work of the devil. <laughs> Which is, we're certainly always in the midst of the work of the devil. Now, one of the things you do in this book so well is to just use the graphic format and, and to tell a lot, give us a lot of information, tell us a great, lot of great stories and tell an overall big story. And as I read this, I realized I wasn't thinking this is a graphic not work of naf- graphic nonfiction. I was just getting what you were trying to tell us. Oh, Wow. That feels so good. I think I can die now, except I won't do it on your air. That makes me so happy because the whole point of the book was to make the argument, which is built on a bunch of key historical moments, to build my argument so that it was sticky, so that it would stay in the mind, and that it would be relatively seamless. And so we had these images, we created these images so that you can hold a bunch of things in your mind at one time, uh, because the book is all about human cognition and evolution and about press freedom, and there's this huge section on war and all of that. And, And at the end of it, you're supposed to come to the conclusion that what we're going through now, we've always gone through, that much of this is cyclical, that there is an extraordinary change that is new, that's unprecedented ahead of us, but we can use the experience of centuries past to launch us into this new age and not worry that the human race or the republic will not survive. Well, you know, the, I think as you point out, in, in a sense, this super new change that we're undergoing that's going to transform society isn't a lot different or going to be a lot more, uh, involve a lot more change than the printing press. Well, right. I mean, the printing press was revolutionary. And then the telegraph and the radio and the television and, you know, all of these moved us along a road. But as we, as we know, the pace of change accelerates with time. So everything is happening faster and faster and faster. And so this new era, which is just extending and and uh, what what's the word? It's just sort of universalizing something that was in, incremental with all the other technology means that we are going to 
ultimately merge with the media. We've gotten closer and closer and closer, and soon we'll no longer have the excuse to say that the media is some is something outside of our locus of control that is actually controlling our minds. I mean, I, it was wrong in a way for me to title this book The Influencing Machine when the entire book is an argument that the media are not an influencing machine, that it is a mirror. And now that we have technology that puts a printing press in everybody's pocket, we have to stop denying it and take some direct action and direct responsibility in how we consume it. Because if we consume it and contribute to it differently, the entire media will change. It isn't just about cable. It isn't just about television. It's about everything, about every smartphone in everybody's pocket. You know, I remember the advertisements for the first Apple image writers were freedom of the press to those who own one. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, uh, and you do, and so do I. And so did everybody in Tetradera Square. Now, as you compose this, one of the things that interested me about this book is that you seem really aware of the reading experience that when we read, that's a very unique form of entertainment, of taking in knowledge, of experiencing the world. And I think that what you do with the reading experience is itself very interesting. Um, talk about creating the images. As a writing experience for you, you've written a lot for radio, so that's scripts and stuff. That's most. That's all words. This is something very different. This is writing descriptions of something. You essentially became your own motion picture director or <laughs> yes. motionless picture director. <laughs> well, you see, you knew more about this than I did when I began because uh, when I wrote, produced my first scripts for Josh, I gave him a general idea of what I wanted in the panels, like the first, you know, couple of pages. And I said, well, you know, I don't want to, you know, cramp your uh, creativity. And even though I'd read Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, which is a brilliant book that taught me virtually everything I knew before I started, and Josh taught me the rest, I understood that the difference between an illustrated book and a comic book is that in an illustrated book, the pictures support and reinforce the text, but in a comic book, the pictures replace the text. And so Josh said, you're not giving me enough to work with here. And I said, really? I'm not like you want me to tell you specifically exactly what I want? And he said, yes, I can't read your mind. So then I sent him these complicated scripts where there'd be 200, 300 words of description of what I want in the picture, three links from the Internet about how I want it to look, uh, and then maybe 12 words of actual text in the, in the panel. And this went on for about 1,000 panels, which is roughly how many there are in the book. And, uh, you know, there were some times where he had to push back sort of instruct me in the art of the possible. No, Brooke, you can't have the entire Crimean War in this panel. You can have one guy on a horse, or you can have a splash page, or you can have 10 panels. But no, you can't put the entire war in that one panel, and especially uh, with 30 words of text. You know, Forget about it. And so then I had to go back. In fact, I had to redo the war section entirely because I had bitten off way more than I could chew. And the, the section on war reporting, which illustrates so much about the media and how it currently operates, is kind of like a book within a book and starts with the Crimean War and, uh, you know, ends with uh, Afghanistan. Well, it interests me, too, that y you managed to take something that's really, in many ways, might be just a book of very nebulous ideas that would be really hard to glom onto and, and get your, wrap your brain around. You could read this <clears throat> on all the sources and the quotes from the sources and text, and you could have... Uh, put this together <clears throat> in a manner that would be, you just read it and go, what the heck was that about? <laughs> but, but you turned it into a kind of an exciting narrative. And it's great because there's two story arcs. There's, a, there's the overall kind of history of the media and the journey through the types of media that you create. And then each chapter has a chronological aspect, and the whole thing has a chronological aspect. How many spreadsheets did you use wow. to put this together? Wow. This reminds me of that of that story where Paul Simon said to uh, UB Banks, he goes, I just love the way you use every note of the chromatic scale in every one of your songs. And he goes, do I do that? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I didn't do any. In fact, my daughter, uh, both of them, uh, have worked in publishing and uh, 
one of them said, so like when you do your chapters, I mean, you, do you have an outline? And I go, well, kind of, but I'm not really following you. Uh, so how do you know what you're going to put in each chapter? And I said, I don't. Every single chapter was individually researched. I had a sort of overall idea, but those internal structures within structures was actually pure serendipity. I noticed it too at the end of the book. I said, oh my God, this is like a jigsaw puzzle that, you know, randomly came together, but it did. I guess I had a more coherent view than I realized when I started this project, or maybe as the research came, it all clicked into place. Because I do feel that structure's never been my strong suit, and, and yet it was, it did come out with a pretty solid structure, and I think that it does create an argument. And you're the only one else who's, you're the only other person who ever noticed that that sort of structure within the structure within the structure actually holds together, and I'm very grateful. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's one of the things that I found is a real pleasure for for reading the book is to um, as a reading experience, it's really cohesive and you address a lot of really great stuff. There's also um, a lot of uh, really interesting techniques to fix things in our mind. So I'd like you to talk about creating some of the specific images and some of the specific panels. Um, let's just start with with graphic you. I mean, you had to, to show us who you were. And those panels are pretty uh, a powerful and kind of a, a quiet start to the book. Yeah, yeah. No, I, there's, a, there's a reason why I'm so omnipresent. Uh, it isn't solely because of massive egocentricity. It's because I'm a radio person, and you know, and I know, and anybody who listens to radio knows that it is an excruciatingly intimate medium. You have to listen to a person's voice. You are attached. That person's voice is your lifeline that takes you through the information, through the war zone, through the pictures, through the complex tapestry of voice, other voices. The voice of the reporter or the anchor is something that you hook onto. You have to. And it feels like a one-to-one -one relationship. That's the way I've written for a couple of decades now for radio. I thought that if I could speak in bubbles and look the reader literally in the eye as I took them through the invention of the written word to the year 2045 and then back to cavemen times and then to, you know, the First World War and, and all the places that we zoom and zing throughout the book, if I could hold them by the hand, they wouldn't get lost. And I, was, I would be able to anchor them in the reasons why I was taking them to this place. Sometimes in the book I feel a little bit like the, you know, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future just there beside Scrooge taking them through because I feel like I have to be with them on this on this journey because it's a complex and and sometimes bloody one. Well, it's also really full of surprises. Um, it, 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 I'm a guy who reads science fiction, so I was kind of shocked to see the science fictional plot behind the very first manifestation of the influencing machine. Talk a little bit about the heirloom, because I read that and I thought, oh my God, that's so cool. It's very steampunk. <laughs> yes, it is steampunk. Uh, well, except that it precedes steampunk, <laughs> because it took place, uh, this is a, a man who believed that there was a machine being operated by a very shadowy bunch of evildoers that was driving Britain to war with France. This was just four years after, uh, you know, the royals lost their heads. It's, I think, it was 1796 or something like that and uh, in France. And he went to Parliament and screamed, but he couldn't really quite scream because the heirloom using the new science of gases was undulating in his mind, making him obsessed, interfering with his speech, and, you know, doing what influencing machines do, exciting his inner demons and suppressing his better angels. And, and he just screamed in the middle of Parliament, and he was sent to Bedlam. And he was the subject of the first book-length treatment of a mental patient. So this guy, his name was uh, 
Matthew Tilly. James Matthew Tilly. James Matthew Tilly. Boy, I'm sorry. I really should just have all those names etched in my mind at this point. James Tilly Matthews. James Tilly Matthews, right. He was really the first mental patient to have a book written about him, and it was all about this machine. And even though he was very rational, he never ceased to believe in that machine. And then later, uh, a hundred more than 100 years later, a disciple of Sigmund Freud noticed the same thing in a patient of his, a schizophrenic, who believed that an electrical device was controlling her mind uh, remotely, you know, from hundreds of miles away, and creating sexual feelings in her, feelings that she couldn't own, feelings that, she, you know, in other words, these schizophrenics were projecting onto this external locus of control, onto these technological devices, powers to, you know, that really were within themselves, but which they couldn't own and acknowledge as their own. Schizophrenic. There was personality disintegration. My feeling was that the influencing machine in popular imagination is how people regard the media, something that is coarsening the culture, hobbling our judgment, exciting our lusts, shortening our attention span, all that stuff. It's not us. It's this machine. It's the media. And I tried to show throughout centuries and centuries and centuries how the media really are a, me- a mirror that track with society at various points. There's a push and pull. It isn't purely reactive. It may push some things ahead a little bit, but basically it tracks with the public. And if we want to attack the media, we need to look at what the media are reflecting, which is us. It's too bad they uh, didn't have tinfoil back then in the 1700s. <laughs> yes, there would be a lot of shiny pates, wouldn't there? <laughs> now, uh, this is so interesting, too, that, you know, from the very earliest origins of language um, were PR. <laughs> That's right. First, there were publicists. Then there were reporters because language was owned by the uh, princes. Language was owned by the kings. Once somebody devised a written speech, uh, written alphabet, it was the leadership, the those in power, who used it to keep track of their holdings and to uh, proclaim whatever the myths of the day were and to uh, recount their victories in war. Uh, it was really much later that there, the democratization of language began, of literacy, and that is a process that has continued until any one of us can send a fact into the world, and who knows where it goes from there. Well, it's interesting, too, how the once the state figured this out, the first thing everybody did was to use it to con, essentially to rule the world. Right. Yes. It was always very, very powerful. <laughs> uh, you know, it isn't always... A lot of people think language is the most civilizing thing because it does create order and a kind of commonality, but that can be used like any tool. It can be used uh, for good, or it can be used as as a tool to to control and repress people. You know, if it's in the hands of everybody, that's less likely to happen. That's why I'm not so negative about the future. I think that it isn't the end of the professional class of journalists. They will always have a role, but I think that it is, you know, very much going to be a level playing field in the future. I mean, really starting from now. Well, one of the things I think you get to do in this book, you let yourself do, and it's an interesting thing, is you let yourself report history. You report on stories that are not just dead for days or weeks, <laughs> but stories that have been dead for centuries. <laughs> and this or millions been... of years. Yes. I think the oldest story that I recount is uh, it's the section that says we all know that people make tools, but uh, what many of us don't realize is that tools make people. We think that back in, uh, in the days of prehistoric man, uh, their brains got bigger, and then they picked up a club, and they walked on two feet. Well, now we know that the picking up of the club was first, then came bipedalism and bigger brains and all of those things. It was because they could survive by holding that club. It made them uh, a tougher adversary for their uh, natural enemies that they began to evolve and change. The tool changed man, and tools always change man. And tools are changing man now. And so we are getting rewired again. Humanity is a moving target. We don't stay as we are now. 
you know, we will keep changing and the definition of what it means to be human is changing and it is changing in response to our tools. And in the future, as we continue to merge with our media, and if Ray Kurzweil's notion of the future, uh, the great singularity happens in the year 2045, we will become something quite unlike what we are now or begin that process then where we become basically one with our technology. It no longer becomes something that we use, but something that defines us. But he says it always has. Now, uh, it, that's kind of what uh, Kevin Kelly calls the technium, uh, in a, which is this idea of what technology itself wants, that it exists beyond us. And what what it does best, it shapes us to do, to help it in a way. Yeah. No, I I would not uh, I personally don't uh, ascribe intentionality to technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess if you think of technology kind of like nature, mm-hmm. then there is a certain unconscious intentionality. It wants to survive. It wants to maintain a kind of... Uh, equilibrium, a biological, bionic, whatever you call it, biospheric equilibrium. But uh, no, I I see a kind of co-evolution. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what, uh, what uh, Kevin Kelly talks about, is a co-evolution between technology, what, what we make and how it makes us. Uh, it's also, and I agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I, I love in this book is to read all the old, old examples of the things that seem so incredibly new now. And who knew uh, about the the Office of Censorship, the OC? I think it's the, the Orange OSI. County. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, it's true. It's true. There was an Office of Censorship Office of Censorship during World War One, But then, of course, uh, you know, there was a Sedition Act then. And the Sedition Act of World War One was pretty much an exact copy of the Sedition Act signed by John Adams only about seven years after uh, the Constitution guaranteed our uh, freedom of speech. And it entirely curtailed it. So there's always been a push and pull between freedom of speech and government. Every time the country faces an existential threat, there is a push against freedom of speech, and the public itself will often agree because they feel, uh, because they're afraid. I mean, very simply, we are afraid, we want to be protected, and we don't feel speech is worth uh, dying for. The trouble is, is that when you think about, you know, what defines America, if you don't have freedom of speech, then you can you cannot maintain what it is you're fighting so hard to protect. So, you know, that's my point of view. You point out that uh, presidents have a particularly uh, unhappy relationship with freedom of speech. They're not so much. They might get elected to protect it, but they're not so much for it once they are uh, president. Yeah, yeah. No, I think. I mean, I I offer a lot of examples of that, mm-hmm. uh, and I think the most telling one really is Jefferson's because you know he was the greatest proponent of freedom of speech at the beginning of his life and at the end of his life. But in the middle of his life, when he was president, he called uh, newspapers polluted vehicles uh, in which nothing could be believed. He said that people who read newspapers were less informed than people who didn't. And he generally called the state of journalism putrid. Uh, So given all of that, he still understood that the agitation created by a free press was necessary Necessary to keep the waters of democracy pure. Well, it's also interesting, too, to just think about the, the history of reading as a technology, because when it was, as you say, millennia ago, when we first invented the written language, the, the greatest thinkers of the time thought, all is lost. <laughs> yes, Socrates was not a fan of writing things down. He thought it would be, and tell me if this sounds familiar to you, it would impair memory. Now we say that the minute we put a number into our uh, cell phone and we don't have to remember it anymore, we're destroying our memory. Well, we're offloading our memory. That's what writing is, offloading memory. The more you can store things, the more you can build on them. You know, it's amazing that we have the oral tradition that gave us the Odyssey and the Iliad. But, you know, and people did learn how to build on their oral memories in a way that we haven't had to today. So maybe we've lost that. But look at the volumes of knowledge that we've been able to preserve by offloading it. Well, we're still offloading it. Socrates might be appalled, but it's worked out pretty well. 
Yeah. Um, if uh, writing didn't make it stu- make us stupid, the chance that Google is going to make us stupid, probably not so great. I don't think it's going to make us stupid. But, you know, by Google, you know, obviously we mean uh, surfing the web and, and, and uh, checking all different, you know, following different streams of information all at the same time and dividing our brains up into little segments. It isn't going to make us stupid, but it is potentially going to make us different. Well, you know, one thing that uh, your book is perfect evidence of how this is making us different because you've taken what would normally be a tome <laughs> that would not even have a dust jacket <laughs> and, and, and condensed hundreds of pages into less than 200 pages. Uh, talk, you talk about, um, in your book, pictures are worth way more than thousands of words. Talk about that. I mean, this is, in a sense, the TVization of, of academic literature. Uh, TVization? <laughs> I, thank you very much. I, I prefer to think of it as the uh, uh, ab- abstract expressionism of, no, not really, more... German uh, expressionism. But, it, you know, there, there are lots of places where it's just so much easier to show than it is to tell. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's really more like cinema. Uh, or maybe it is like TV. Good TV. You know, yeah. Battlestar Galactica maybe <laughs> or Breaking Bad. Uh, it's, uh, it gives, you know, I get to show... Uh, you know, people outside of Dante's Inferno. I get to show the entire history of war, which is like a book within a book here. I get to show what status quo bias is. Oh, by, I love you know. the bias sections. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't have to explain what bad news bias is more than a sentence or two because we have these uh, locusts with words on them that explain exactly what I mean with a single word. Uh, there's just so many places in which I didn't have to say things. But it's true that I had to write the book pretty much three times. I wrote it kind of textually, and Mm -hmm. then I cut it in half to see what I could put in a picture instead of, say, in text. And then I cut it in half again to see if I could create a richer image to say even less in text. And, uh, you know, it was a tremendously satisfying experience for me to think visually because in some ways it's like working with tape. I thought it was really incredibly well done and well wrought the way you managed to convey to us in a in a single panel what would be and what you do I think that's so interesting is you don't just replace 10 pages of text with a single panel you make a point with a single panel or a single image and a quote that just could not possibly be made in text. You're using this kind of technology, which isn't particularly new. This isn't a website or some kind of interactive giga. It's 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 a graphic novel. They've been around for graphic mm-hmm. novel. It's been around for a while. Like you use this medium really powerfully and really well. Thank you. Now, but you know what? There is something inherent in this form, which feels a lot like radio to me, mm-hmm. and that is rhythm. Mm, Use mm -hmm. of the silent panel, use of ellipses in text, which I do when I'm reading scripts. Use of, uh, well, I had a discussion with Art Spiegelman before I did this book. And uh, one of the most important bits of advice he gave me was finish your idea by the end of the page. I mean, not necessarily the overarching idea of the chapter, but if you're saying something, whatever it is you're saying, finish saying that thing at the end of the page. And so the turning of the page, I hope, works to sort of move you forward to the next thing and to the next thing without sort of making it all jumpy. It was, you know, it put another barrier in my path, but it also forced me to think incredibly economically of what I had to say and what it would take to say it and would I need one full page or two full pages to say it. I think the rhythm, the music of a graphic novel creates more clarity than sometimes reams of words. I, I would agree in this case. It, it's certainly true. And I have to wonder, though, uh, as a somebody who's, you know, reported on news, about news, and spends a fair amount of her time looking at news that's ineptly reported or badly reported or just out and out lies. Many you, that's one of the things you talk about in here. How often news people lie. How did you feel about like 
taking, you know, quotes from, you know, Walter Lippmann, you know, these these icons of news and putting them in, in a graphic novel. Uh, did you did... have reservations? <laughs> I didn't allow myself any reservations. I mean, Walter Lippmann is the least of it. There are a lot of living people in mm. this book who I did not ask permission. Oh. And I have heard from <laughs> many of them. No one's mad yet. Oh. But I literally sent pictures to Josh of these people and quotes of theirs. Oh, really? Uh, you know, people who I talk to on my program or mm-hmm. people who have said things in other contexts. It's all footnoted in the back. And, uh, you know, I just said, well, have him saying this and have him in front of this kind of thing. And sometimes I'll have people doing very peculiar things while saying whatever it is they're saying. And I, you know, at one point, Yokai Benkler, who is a great, uh, you know, internet visionary, he wrote, uh, what, the network, uh, oh God, I can't remember the name of it now, but it's it's a fantastic and important work. But uh, I am quoting him in the book, and I have him dancing basically you know, uh, naked as one of uh, Matisse's dancers, only everyone's holding a cell phone. And uh, The Wealth of Networks, that's mm-hmm. the name of, of his book. And, uh, you know, a friend of mine who was up at Harvard said that uh, Yokai Benkler saw that, and he was quite moved. But I certainly didn't ask him, nor did I ask Clay Shirky or Jack Schaefer or Ethan Bronner or, you know, a- any number of the people who were in this book who uh, had no, um, who had no control. <laughs> now, it it also interests me too, and I, and I didn't think of it until just this second. How super remarkably imaginative this book is! I mean, here's a book that, again, is a as you yourself say, is about a subject that can be kind of dry, but terrifyingly you, dry, terrifyingly dry, and terrifyingly because it's something we really need to know and think about and engage in the manner that you can only engage when you read something. Reading that brings to um, your mind a certain form of thought that I don't think you can duplicate in any other uh, media. And you do that here. And you've, you've got everything's footnoted. It's This is a work of nonfiction. It's a work of some philosophy. But it's remarkably imaginative. And, and you have a peculiar imagination, a fun imagination. It is peculiar. <laughs> I know, I know. You go, you sort of run from George Eliot to Spider-Man to... The Inferno to The Matrix to, you know, and, you know, to Betty Crocker pretty much at the end of the book. Uh, it was really an opportunity. It was kind of a romp through my brain. But a lot of it was created by going down the rabbit hole. I mean, I didn't know that section of Dante until Yates made that really snarky remark about journalists. And then I tracked that, Don, you know, where that came from. And then I realized that Kennedy had quoted something like that. And then down and down and down and down the rabbit hole. Anybody who uh, plays around on the internet finds themselves learning so many things. That's why it took this book two years to do. Uh, I learned so much of it while I was writing it. I So much I didn't know. It's kind of like my own little graduate school uh, because I never studied journalism. Well, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Partway through this book and buried in here, you give us the a portrait of a uh, Brooke Gladstone with the uh, an interesting triumvirate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean Brooke's worldview? Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's when I was talking about how uh, you know we filter information. We're wired to filter information information that uh, out that doesn't conform with our worldview. And, uh, and we stick to people who are like us, who share that worldview. That's, that's what uh, many in uh, sociology call homophily. Basically, it's birds of a feather flocking together. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that as a matter of full disclosure, I should uh, pictorially represent my worldview. And, and it- Describe those panels to us, please. <laughs> well, there were just three. I, uh-huh. I, I, I placed myself in front of a, like a three-way mirror. And in one of them was sort of the, you know, Woodstock folky uh, guitar thing poster. And then in the middle was uh, the Marx Brothers. And then uh, the third one was uh, Spock. Um, Spock was actually in the middle. <laughs> oh, Spock was in the middle. Of course he was. And and then when I turn away, he's... Uh, He's uh, giving me, you could either call it live long and prosper or just devil fingers above my head. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, uh, you have you seem to kind of like um, using uh, 
this science fiction as a way of kind of externalizing things, which I think is its great strength So uh, in this book. And you also take us a bit into the future, and I was really surprised by that. That was an interesting uh, turn when I came to the, those portions of the book where you uh, talked to Ray Kurzweil and uh, who's, the, who's the Google? Sharon Lanier or... Uh, oh, no, Google is evil. God, I can't. Oh, that's the... Um... Google's making us stupid here. Right. It's made. It, hey, look, it's made me stupid. <laughs> it's Carr. Is his name yes, is Carr. Nick Carr. Nick Carr. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Well, you know, if I am offering sort of the sweep of history to give people a real sense of where they are in this in this long history of human cog- of cognition, of learning how to think, of learning how to write, learning how to communicate, and then, you know, where it's taking us as a society, and how do you stop with the present? You have to speculate a little. Everybody wants to know where we're going. And, uh, you know, so I offer uh, a view of where we may be going, and it's fraught, it's dangerous, and it's thrilling. But, you know, even that is no different from the past. We've always faced futures that are dangerous and fraught and thrilling. And, uh, you know, we somehow manage to survive, although sometimes it's miraculous that we do. We probably will face other existential threats as a result of our technology. That won't be the first time either. Uh, The bomb didn't, you know, well, we spend some time on the bomb, but, Mm. you know, the bomb did not destroy the world. Uh, not you know, yet. Not yet. <laughs> and and maybe, you know, this technology will, you know, maybe the robots will, you know, get us like in Terminator. Uh, I don't think so. That's not my view of the future. I think we tend to uh, rise up to a challenge eventually, <laughs> sometimes right down to the wire. But I think people have a right to see what some really fascinating thinkers believe we're headed now, uh, one of the things I really like about this book, too, is you you give us a real insider's view of journalism, and you talk about, you know, the seven deadly biases. <laughs> <laughs> so take us a little bit through some of those biases, which I think are, are a lot of fun. And it's an interesting look at, at um, the, the way that news is put together and some of those filters, because I think that's what's really important here are these various filters that we have. Right, yeah. Uh, you want to go through the biases? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the thing is, is that I, I wanted to address the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everybody thinks that bias means political bias. And I think there are biases that are baked into the business of journalism mm. and into the business and wired into our minds that are far less obvious and easy and far more pernicious and something that people really ought to be aware of. Consequential. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Commercial bias is simply the bias towards news. That means once something happens and you report it, you don't go back to it because it isn't new anymore. Even though the story may have entirely changed, even though it may have advanced, the stakes may have advanced, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, you've, you know... Once you've been there, you don't go back. We don't hear nearly as much about Japan. That story has not gone away. You know, why don't we? Because it's not really news anymore, and we're wired for, you know, essentially the, uh, you know, the the novelty of, mm-hmm. of a news story. Then there's something called bad news bias. This is the sort of thing that exaggerates the threats to us, uh, in, you know, never diminishes the coverage of crime. Even when crime is actually going down, people think the world is more dangerous than it actually is. Reporters are not really serving the public when they present bad news bias, but we care about things that could inherently hurt us. And so that stuff is really popular. Status quo bias. Fundamentally, we are wired not to want things to change, but to stay the way they are. And that is how things are reported. The things that are negative are the things that represent a substantial change from what we already know. An example of that, if you think back to the Gore-Bush election, uh, you know, everybody 
you know, there was tons of coverage over how this election fell apart, but nobody questioned the way that we elect our officials. And is there a problem with that? You know, that's sort of I know the Electoral the... College and all the yeah. voting fraud. You know, I... it comes up. But the thing is, is that we have a bias towards keeping things the way they are, even when they clearly don't work. So status quo bias is another one. Access bias in Washington or when you cover any political uh, official, when you hear the words senior administration official, you know that the reporter has cut a deal to keep that person anonymous. And so you look at the blind quote and you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Nine times out of ten, it isn't. But And, and you aren't being served because you have a quote that's generally boilerplate and you don't know where it comes from, so you can't guess the motivation or the context of the person who's saying it. The public, again, is not being served. For me, a bias is anything that basically queers the coverage so that the so that the public is not being served visual bias that is again wired in people's minds i wouldn't have done the book this way if That's i wasn't aware I was of visual say. bias <laughs> yeah. but uh you know this is the sense that yeah, if something has a picture attached to it, it has a great deal more impact so you go for stories with pictures uh as i note in the book the Washington Post ran a front-page story about the torture of detainees three months before the Iraq War began. Uh, that was in uh, 2002, December 2002, but it wasn't until April 2004 when those pictures came out of Abu Ghraib with the guy standing on the box with the electrodes, the dogs, all of those horrible pictures, the pile of naked bodies, that suddenly the story uh, took off and had resonance. The story was there, but no, but it just didn't take off. Nobody paid attention. There's narrative bias. This is really hard when you're covering science and politics. The sense that a story has to have a beginning, middle, and end. We like characters. We like conclusions. In science, it doesn't work that way. Science is a process, which is why science stories are so confusing, especially health stories. You know, Fat makes you thin. Fat makes you fat. Chocolate is good for you. Chocolate is bad for you. Chocolate is good for you. You know, so on and so on and so on. You never know what the next conclusion is going to be because science is a process. But you cannot, reporters do not often report science as if it is a process, but that there is a conclusion and that conclusion won't change until you get to the next conclusion. Finally, there is fairness bias, and people think that's kind of a contradiction in terms, but it's not, because sometimes reality is not a story of two equal sides battling it out. Sometimes mm. one side is the real story, and one side is a political or a religious or some other kind of construct. Uh, you know, when you look at global warming, if you give two equal sides to that question, you are not serving the public. There is a huge scientific consensus on one side and some a few outliers on the other. Uh, evolution, same thing. You know, you're not serving the public. If you, if, you pro, if you present this as like two equal sides battling it out, you don't need to put on a Holocaust denier every time you talk about the Holocaust. Well, no way. But don't you have to put on somebody who says the earth is flat every time you show a picture <laughs> of the earth from space? I mean, well, I'm sorry. You know, if, <laughs> here's what I think. If it's controversial... I mean, if it really is controversial, I'm not saying you should ban any voices at all from the air. I think everybody should be heard, but they don't have to be accorded scientifically, precisely calibrated equal words mm. in a story. You can present those comments in their proper context, and then you are serving the public with the best information that you have. And then, you know, if you take those seven deadly uh, biases, you will find that they all get an incredible workout in war, which is why the war chapter is like a book within a book. Oh, it's powerful yeah. and, and very interesting. Um, that must have been a, a hard chapter for you to write, just in terms of marshalling all the information and turning, as you say, a book within a book into, you know, a, a nice, stunning uh, visual set of sequences. And it's some tough stuff in there, too. It's very you're right. You're right. This book, this chapter sometimes physically made me sick mm -hmm. because I spend so much time trolling through pictures of trench warfare or of, uh, of acidified, you know, ashified bodies in, uh, in Hiroshima, uh, you know, mm. and the faces of, of, of babies. Uh, it was really, really bad. It was, it, you know, I can only imagine what it was like actually being in those wars if I'm 
poor me. I was looking at pictures of suffering. Poor me. But I did spend, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks going through those pictures. And then poor Josh, who had to draw them, had a similar experience where you just sort of feel queasy and, and depressed for a while. But it was just the, that is when the common practice of media as as practiced, journalism as practiced by professional comes out in sharpest relief. Every single bias except fairness bias comes out in spades. Not fairness bias. You never see that in war. There's only one side. It's interesting. It's in war that uh, they first started uh, giving bylines. I didn't. That's just so amazing. To there's that's one thing about this book. There's so many like really amazing things. You go, how could I not know that? Yeah, I had the same experience. <laughs> yeah, it was really. It was really the Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, General Hooker hated the press people saying, the reporters in the field saying horrible and libelous and, and making stuff up about what was going on uh, and, and printing it without bylines because he wanted to know who it was that was saying those things about him. And so he basically banned anybody from you know, covering his war unless they were willing to sign their own stories. And in the in the process, turned reporters into stars somewhere <laughs> into the dis distant future. Yes, the distant future stars. Yeah, you see, that's what you call unintended consequences. Well, uh, as a writer and and a reader, um, one of the things I think that this book really does well is to um, just allow us to immerse in these abstract ideas, but see them done concretely and we pick up so many specifics from this and that's one of the things I think that's the real virtue of the form you chose I, and but there are pieces that are just prose so talk about making the choice the call when to when you're going to draw when you're going to write was that was that easy did you find it abrupt on the on the dozen or so occasions when I shifted to a page of text with a single illustration, or did you find it a relief from the pictures, or neither? Uh, I, I didn't find it necessarily a relief. I enjoyed it. I, th I, I thought it flowed well. I thought it made the, the book flow well and gave us some glue. It's like if you built a pyramid out of just bricks... Yeah, well, that's generally uh, I lapsed into text with a single illustration on a page uh, on about a dozen occasions to sort of finish up a chapter mm -hmm. or to summarize the points or to point to the next chapter. Um, it was simply because in the in the vast majority of the book, it's like, what, 170 something pages or more, maybe 180 pages, there's, uh, you know, maybe a dozen pages of text with single illustration. And that's because in those places, I found that there would be no illustration that would do what I needed to be done there. There were places where it was a summary of material that came before. It was coming to conclusions. It was putting uh, sort of a period at the end of the sentence. It was an explication. And, you know, elsewhere in the book, I'm, I'm showing my point. And then at that point, I'm just tying it up with a knot and, you know, shoving on to the next point. And that was my way of making sure that, you know, if it went by too fast, here it is in another way before I move on. Now, do you think, see yourself writing more books? And if so, and what, what, uh, what will they be? Are doing, I mean, well, could you turn this into a website or some, an iBook with a thousand links in it. Well, uh, you know, they made, uh, Norton made a three and a half minute animation of the front of the book that is brilliant. It's, I don't know if you've seen it. Mm -mm. Uh, you should link to it. It's, oh. uh, if you just go to, you know, Google and then put my name in the influencing machine and then hit video, it'll be the third thing probably on there, and you'll see a, a vision of this person. And it's just great. It's about the Victor Tausk story. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's uh, I could envision this as like a as an animated thing because of that animation, which I was just so impressed with. It was brilliantly done and very much in keeping with the style of the book. I, uh, I you know, Norton owns this book. I mean, I don't know what else we would do with it. Uh, apparently, the Kindle is not that easy to read. Mm. I mean, maybe I shouldn't be saying that, but it's they I... didn't use the cool DC Comics. Uh, they didn't have the rights to the DC Comics. Uh, app that allows you to zero in panel after panel. Mm. So what you have to do is sort of 
look at a whole page and then sort of enlarge to some degree, and some of the type can be awfully small. Uh, this is one that's actually better to get in hardcover because the, uh, the Kindle version is just not. There may be, uh, maybe there's a different app that they have for it that's better. The book just came out, so, you know, I, don't, I haven't even seen it on, uh, in electronic form. But I would like to write a, a science fiction uh, graphic novel, a real novel, not a nonfiction novel. We need a new word for what that is. But, uh, but I started out writing uh, a graphic uh, novel uh, about a reporter in the year 2042, and I was going to do it for DC Comics, not for Norton, and I sort of plotted myself into a corner. And, uh, and then when I switched to this approach, I couldn't stay with DC Comics because they wanted the rights to change it any way they wanted, and since this is my life's work, uh, I couldn't have my name <laughs> attached to something that they decided to change sort of randomly. These are my thoughts. So that they could have done it with the novel, but not with, uh, not with this. This is... is too closely associated with everything that I believe. So I had to just walk away and start all over, and Norton took it from there. Wow. Well, that's so interesting. I, I'd love to see that. Uh, is there any way we could see any parts of that? Uh, of my science fiction? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's it's there was only a, a... I wrote about 70 pages, but only about uh, a dozen were actually illustrated, and not by Josh, by somebody else who's, who's very good, Chris Mayoro, but not a uh, not a professional comic writer, mm-hmm. a comics artist. And so uh, I, I don't think it's an estate to look at, but uh, someday I will return to it. Uh, the My editor at DC Comics, who was very good at, at this story stuff, she's not there anymore, uh, gave me some really incredible suggestions for changing that science fiction novel, but it involved pretty much starting from scratch, and oh. I just couldn't do it. Well, I'm so interested in this. Now, who are your favorite science fiction writers? I mean, if you're who who are your uh, mentors in the science fiction world? Well, obviously, I mean, there are just so many ways to do it. I mean, the book that I give to people who are incredibly skeptical about science fiction uh, when I want them to understand the kind of sweep and scope and uh, transport of clarity of it, I'll usually give them a canticle for Leibowitz mm-hmm. to start. Walter uh, M. Miller, Jr., the, yeah. one of the all-time greats. One of the greatest uh, science fiction, I mean, as as a piece of literature, just mm-hmm. really spectacular. I, uh, you know, I, the next book I'll usually give them is Ender's Game because it's just so well-realized. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, you know, what do you, what do you normally give people when you want to seduce them into the form? I also have, uh, of course... Uh, dozens of uh, <laughs> Philip K. Dick and the Illuminati is really fun. But if you hand anybody that book, they they just run away screaming because it just looks too big. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I I really don't know. I, I well, like, what's your favorite science fiction? Um, uh, Stanislaw Lem, probably. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He, there's a book called His Master's Voice. And actually, mm-hmm. my favorite book by him, it's oddly enough, isn't science fiction. It's called A Perfect Vacuum. I have not read that. It's uh, perfect reviews of non-existent books. And there's a book in there, actually, that he reviews that uh, pertains to your book. It's called Pericalypsis. <laughs> um, and the author of the book that he's reviewing uh, suggests that we've already come to the apocalypse. It's just nobody noticed in the general haste. And the reason of this is because there are so many books being produced that we can't find the seven books that will save the world anymore that we could find seven specific grains of sand in the Sahara Desert. And so he proposes this scheme to pay people not to write. That's amazing. The Barnaby Rich syndrome <laughs> right. in extremis. I've been speaking with Brooke Gladstone. Her new, <laughs> I've been speaking with Brooke Gladstone. Her new book is The Influencing Machine. Thank you for joining me, Brooke. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.